Before we begin, we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has digestible courses in topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing. In today's episode, we explore the cosmic web that connects galaxies together. If you want to delve into cosmology, Brilliant has a wide selection of explainers, problems and quizzes that will satisfy your curiosity. From how the universe originated to the different kinds of matter there are in the universe, the courses are presented in an accessible way that allow you to gain a deep understanding of a subject. So to put your spare time to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills, go to brilliant.org/newscientist and sign up for free. And also the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that address is brilliant.org/newscientist. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarche, New Scientist news editor, and I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. Joining us this week are New Scientist journalists Graham Lawton and Lyle Liverpool. Hi, you two. Hey there. How are you doing? Hello. On this week's show, we're looking at how the Black Lives Matter movement is influencing science and what the institutions of science need to do to combat systemic racism. We also discuss how it's now possible to induce a kind of suspended animation state in mammals and what this may mean for people. And we hear about a galactic web that stretches throughout the universe. We're also going to catch up on our cultural habits during lockdown. But first, the pandemic. This week, we've heard there are now more than 8.3 million confirmed cases of coronavirus worldwide and almost 450,000 deaths. There's been some good news, though, with the results of a trial in the UK showing that a widely available drug called dexamethasone, a steroid, reduces the risk of dying from severe COVID-19 by a third for patients on ventilators and by a fifth for those receiving supplementary oxygen. It's the first drug anywhere in the world that's been found in randomly controlled trials to reduce the mortality of COVID-19, but of course it's not a cure. No, it's not a cure, and we're still very much in the early stages of the pandemic. Even so, everyone agrees that another pandemic at some point is all but inevitable, and that, especially given the lack of preparation for this one, we need to start preparing for the next one now. In this week's magazine, we've taken a detailed look at what steps we need to take, and Graham, you've been reporting on this. Yes, I have. We obviously don't know exactly where or when the next pandemic will happen, or what it will be, but just because we're in the middle of this current pandemic, which has been called a 100-year pandemic, doesn't mean that we're off the hook and there won't be another one anytime soon. So that begs the question, what can we do? And as usual, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that preparing for pandemics is theoretically, theoretically quite straightforward. Pandemics are always combated by the same basic strategy, and that's surveillance, interruption of infection chains, and the ramping up of prevention and treatment capacity. That holds true even though the specifics of the new pathogen are uncertain. And that means, therefore, that the world only needs one pandemic preparedness plan. Well, that's great. That's simple then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it may surprise some listeners to hear that we actually have one um, in the form of a global treaty administered by the World Health Organization called the International Health Regulations. And these set out rules and procedures for WHO members to deal with potential pandemics. So they cover things like surveillance and reporting of unusual new diseases, on testing capacity, on ICU beds, on PPE and that kind of thing. And so when WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern on January the 30th, it was following procedures laid down in the International Health 
regulations and ditto when it declared a pandemic on the 11th of March. And the public health experts I spoke to for this story say that the IHR is largely fit for purpose. So what's been the problem this time then? The problem is that making the plan work relies on WHO member states keeping their side of the bargain, which is where things went wrong this time or could go wrong again next time. And how did things go wrong? Do we need an inquiry to find out or do we already know? I mean, I've heard Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, he's called for an international inquiry into the response. So how did things go wrong? Well, you know, let me count the ways. There were just too many failures, both in preparation and execution, to spell out in detail. You know, of course, some countries got it right. But by definition, a pandemic requires a coordinated global response, and that just didn't really happen. Perhaps the biggest failure was in testing. You may recall the WHO Director General in mid-March urging countries to test, test, test. But too many countries didn't pay attention. So if there was a global treaty, and this is an agreement to act in a certain way in the event of a pandemic... Why did member states not adhere to it? Political choices, basically. Some countries were not prepared. Other countries were prepared but were too slow to respond and then found the scale of testing needed had overwhelmed their capacity to actually do it. Um, But anyway, I think we need to look to the future. Um, And the good news, again, is that we don't need to tear up the IHR and start again, although probably need a bit of revising in the light of what happened. What we do need to do, and this is what public health experts from around the world say, is to make sure they are implemented and maintained in every country around the world. And that probably means wealthier nations stepping in to help less wealthy nations, not as an act of charity, but out of enlightened self-interest, because an outbreak somewhere can spread anywhere. Does it need legal teeth, the IHR, to make sure states adhere to it? So it has been proposed there ought to be a kind of independent auditing method so that uh, WHO auditors can go in and check that countries are living up to their promises. But that probably isn't going to fly because can you imagine the US, which is threatened to withdraw completely from WHO or China, submitting to that kind of external examination right now? Countries mark their own homework. Every couple of years, they go in and they send a form to WHO confirming that their testing levels are X and their pandemic preparedness levels are Y and so on. And clearly, there's wiggle room in there because when it came to the crunch, a lot of those countries weren't uh, actually ready. But how to police that is very difficult. So even if you only need one generic preparedness plan, you have to adjust it according to the specifics of the pathogen. And with the testing, testing, testing exhortation, it turned out with COVID-19, testing symptomatic people wasn't enough. You also need some random surveillance at airports, for example, and also contact tracing. And that's essentially why South Korea dealt quite well with the epidemic and the UK didn't. And our story in this week's MAG goes into that in quite a lot of detail. So where do we go from here then? Well, apart from getting IHR up to speed and finding some way of policing it, there are some extra layers of preparedness that would it would at least be wise to aim for at this point. One is a little-known UN treaty called the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, which member states all signed up for in 2015. It's not specifically about pandemics, but it deals with resilience more generally. And there's also virus surveillance, although that's another whole story. Talking about virus surveillance, um, recently I came across a study about monkeypox. So that's a virus related to smallpox that can infect people. Um, And this study found that monkeypox can actually cause a respiratory disease in chimpanzees rather than the kind of more typical rash. Uh, And it's particularly worrying because it suggests the virus might be able to do something similar in humans. So I think there are so many viruses out there, also lots of other pathogens that we need to be paying attention to. 
And we need to really be looking at animals in addition to people. Yeah, I think that's one of the only positives, really, that you can see from this crisis is that suddenly we're all just so much more aware of, of the risk, how, how many different viruses there are circulating in animals and, and how relatively easy now with all the environmental degradation that's gone on, it, it, it can be for these viruses to cross over into people. I, I do hope that means nations will now be able to take the threat more seriously and, and practice tighter surveillance of, of new infections. And to stop the illegal wildlife trade and all the destruction of natural ecosystems that's contributing to the viral crossover, as we've spoken about before on the podcast. Yeah, all those things need to be done. I mean, the virus surveillance thing is an absolutely monumental task. There are so many viruses out there and monitoring them and working out which ones are dangerous is a huge job. And we're just really not up to that yet. But as I said, ultimately, this is about political decisions to invest in preparedness and the kind of willingness to set aside those narrow nationalist self-interests and cooperate. And right now, that's in worryingly short supply. Uh, President Trump's threatened to pull the US out of WHO. China responded by taunting him that he's trying to detract from his own failings at home. You know, and this is a fight that really nobody can win. And what we need is for countries to pull together and to develop some kind of global pandemic preparedness. And I think it's worth looking back to 2011 when the WHO took a look at what happened in the 2009 flu outbreak. It concluded that we got lucky. I don't think we'll say after COVID-19 that we got lucky. We can only guess at what might happen next time. That's our sci-fi alert. As you know, the sci-fi alert sounds when we have a story in the news that's already been written about in science fiction. Rowan. This is a good bit of weirdness about the universe. A few years ago, astronomers discovered that there are filaments of matter linking galaxies across the universe in a kind of unimaginably large galactic web. Uh, the discovery was important because it was a source for the missing matter that our models of the universe predict should be there, but that we couldn't find. And it helped validate some of our ideas about how the structure of the universe is formed and how galaxies themselves form. So what have they found now? They found that this vast cosmic web is spinning. The filaments of the web are rotating. Well, that, that's amazing to think about, but what does it mean? Why should we care? Well, the filaments, they, they stretch tens of millions of light years across the universe. And, you know, that's just inherently interesting. It's inherently interesting to learn about them. Uh, they turn out to be the largest rotating objects in the universe. Uh, and we want to know how galaxies form and how our own Milky Way formed. And we especially want to know how magnetic fields are generated. Earth's magnetic field is generated because the planet has an iron core that's spinning and that powers up a magnetic field. And in a similar way, if the filaments in the cosmic web rotate, it might contribute to the magnetic fields we see on a galactic scale across the universe. So we're learning about the very backbone of matter in the universe. OK, yeah, that seems pretty fundamental. Uh, what's the <laughs> sci-fi link? Well, an intergalactic network of filaments is imagined in Star Trek Discovery. And, and that's the new one, right? Yeah, that's the new one. It's got a new crew, a new ship. A key point in this iteration of Star Trek is that they find that there's a vast network of filaments at a galactic scale... Uh, the difference between reality and the Star Trek one is that they managed to find a way to traverse these filaments. Um, in the show, they're made of mycelium. They're made of fungal matter. Uh, I don't expect we'll be able to traverse the actual real-life filaments because they're made of a very diffuse gas. But it's really interesting that it even exists. And I feel like 
becoming able to describe the structure of the galactic environment is a really amazing thing, even if it's not a living ecosystem like the ones we have on Earth. It's the galactic environment around us. Time out. We wanted to tell you a little bit about one of our favourite podcasts, The Illusionist. Yeah, this is hosted by Helen Zaltzman, who did a TED Talk about the dot on the letter I. The Illusionist is a fantastic show about language, a tool we all use. It's amusing, educational and even at times really quite emotional as Helen explores the functions of language and why it matters to all of us, why we should all care about it. New episodes are out now. You can find the show and subscribe to The Illusionist at all the usual pod places and at theillusionist.org. Next up, we mentioned last week how the Black Lives Matter movement had spread to science with a strike on the 10th of June by thousands of scientists at universities and academic institutions around the world. Many scientific journals have acknowledged the institutional racism inherent in their structure and have pledged to change their ways. It's something we're committed to doing too at New Scientist. And Lyle, you've been looking into this for this week's magazine. Yes, uh, a number of prominent scientific and academic institutions came out in support of the strike against racism in science last week, uh, including the scientific journal Nature, which is one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world. But many black scientists and academics uh, who I talked to said that while they really welcome these statements of support, they are now wanting to see these institutions take real action against racism in science. And they had lots of suggestions, really, of specific actions that scientific journals like Nature uh, and others uh, as well as academic institutions like universities, what they could do to really try to improve things. I spoke to Nature's chief editor, Magdalena Skipper, about this, and she told me that they don't have a single black editor on their staff. Cell also recently published a statement acknowledging that they don't have any black editors. And uh, at Nature, when I spoke to Magdalena, she mentioned that the implications of the lack of black representation on Nature's editorial staff isn't lost on them. And they are trying to take steps to tackle racism in science. Uh, but I think many black academics are really wanting to see that action happen immediately. Yeah, so prestigious journals, of course, have a, a really big influence on science. Um, scientists whose work gets accepted by big journals like Nature and, and Cell, they benefit from cachet that can then see their careers advance further and help them secure more grant money. So so what kinds of actions can journals like these do to to really make a meaningful difference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so specific to suggestions that came up uh, many times included inviting more black academics to write review articles, uh, to peer review scientific papers, uh, and also to serve directly on editorial boards, for example. But journals can't solve the problem of racism in science on their own, obviously. Many of the scientists I spoke to said that universities also need to start acknowledging their own racist histories, as well as the racist history of science more broadly, and to address this in their curricula. Universities also need to penalize academics who express racist views or participate in racist acts and make it safe and straightforward for racism to be reported by staff and students at the university. Alongside all of this, many people specifically made the point to me that they think universities should stop celebrating individuals who are known to be racist. Yeah, this is something we've heard a lot about, isn't it? There's, there's lots of famous scientists who are celebrated for their discoveries, but who have massively racist views that get papered over, aren't there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Francis Galton is one, for example. Uh, he is a geneticist uh, and he basically invented eugenics. Um, so this is literally the stuff that many Nazi policies were based on. Another example is this statistician, Carl Pearson. People working in science may have come across Pearson's coefficient. Uh, yeah, he was yeah. also a committed racist and eugenicist. 
And both of these individuals have spaces or buildings named after them at University College London in the UK, where I study, for example. And in fact, just last week, UCL announced that they're now reviewing the naming of spaces and buildings after uh, Pearson and Galton. Yeah, there have been campaigns to get rid of Galton's name, at least, from UCL for, for ages. And maybe now they will actually do it. Uh, it, well, it's not just UCL, is it? It's universities and scientific institutions across the country and, and across the world. And and you mentioned Nature, um, the journal. A few years ago, they, they sparked fury um, when they published an editorial that said historical statues of people that with troubling views should be left standing. Yeah, and, and troubling views is certainly one way of putting it. Um, yeah. I, one, of, one of the statues um, in question at the time was of Marion Sims, the so-called father of gynaecology, who performed surgeries on enslaved black women. Um, but his statue in Central Park in New York was finally removed in 2018. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's been a lot of discussion more broadly in society about statues as well. Um, And I think the fact that these issues are currently receiving more attention gives us an opportunity uh, to take real action and interrogate the legacies at some of these universities, uh, particularly those linked to science such as eugenics. So this is a chance for all of us to educate ourselves about our racist history, including in science. And apart from the statues and names of buildings, what else have you been hearing, Lyle? So many things. (laughs) So uh, another uh, suggestion was that universities should do more to increase representation of black people, uh, particularly at the top. Uh, Fewer than 1% of professors in the UK are black and fewer than 5% of full professors in the US are black. So we definitely need more black professors and universities need to allocate more funding to diversity and inclusion work. And a number of people said to me that they really need to allocate this funding Uh, rather than just leaving black scientists and academics to do this work for free, in addition to their uh, research and their academic work. And the work needs to be done at at high school as well as university, doesn't it? There's there's a lot of work showing that young black students are less likely to study STEM subjects. And there are many reasons for this. Black people are less represented in science textbooks, for example. And black students are more likely to be put in lower ability classes, regardless of their ability. What are your thoughts on this, Lyle? Yes, I I completely agree with you that systemic racism needs to be addressed across society. Uh, So that includes schools. And I think a good starting point in the UK would be to improve teaching in schools about Britain's role in the slave trade and about the British Empire, uh, as well as the histories of black people in the UK. And I think the history of science is really a part of that story, too. So we often think of science as something pure and separate from society. But science is just a part of society like anything else. Um, So I think scientific and academic institutions in particular have a role to play in listening to the suggestions of black scientists and black academics and take immediate action, immediate steps to increase diversity, penalise racism and tackle unconscious bias within their institutions. Now it's time for Culture in Lockdown. This is when we check in on how we're passing the time during the crisis, what cultural props we've been leaning on to get us through it. Rowan, do you want to start? Uh, I've just finished watching Tales from the Loop on Amazon Prime, which I really loved. It's a show about the weird things that happen in a town built above an experimental physics facility. It's really beautiful and slow moving. And it's all about the characters in the town. It's not so much about the science. It's more like David Lynch at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, and it's inspired by paintings. Yeah, it's inspired by paintings by a Swedish artist called Simon Stallenhag. Um I found it really meditative. And, and Stallenhag, by the way, does the dinosaur illustrations for the Swedish Natural History Museum. Might try and tweet some of those from at New Scientist Pod. 
That sounds great. Graham, what have you been immersed in? So I've been dipping in and out of a book called London's Street Trees, which stars itself as a field guide to the urban forest. It's strictly about street trees, not trees in parks or gardens or churchyards. And, you know, it's a real eye opener. I've lived here for more than three decades and I never realised just how rich London's tree life is is it's full of trees and it's often associated with one species which is the London plane which is actually a hybrid I discovered in this book of the oriental plane and the American sycamore but you know my favorite has got to be the ginkgo tree they've been on earth for unchanged for approximately 270 million years they have these beautiful unique leaves these kind of bilobed leaves that will be familiar to a lot of people Uh, you can find almost identical identical fossilized leaves on the Jurassic coast And the reason I love them so much is that I can see one from where I'm sat right now. There are four ginkgos on my street. They're amazing trees. And also I discovered at the end of my road, there's a Japanese nashi pear tree. Wow. They're also known as maidenhead trees, aren't they, the ginkgos? And I love that they're unchanged for so long. We see them in the fossil record, but actually they're incredibly resilient against pollution. So they're also very, very successful street trees. They're perfect street trees. And I actually have a fossil that I found on the Yorkshire coast when I was probably about 12 or 13 of ginkgo leaves. And they look exactly like the leaves that blow off the trees opposite my house. Oh, amazing. Well, when we finally get back to the office, I want to see that. (laughs) Lyle, what have you been reading, watching, listening to? Right now, uh, I'm reading Natives by Akala, which is uh, about the kind of history of race, racism and class in the UK. Uh, And I've also recently started watching Space Force on Netflix. Uh, The whole concept of that show is just hilarious to me. And I think it's interesting to think about what the world's future in space might look like. Um, I've only watched two episodes so far. It's very silly, isn't it? It's extremely silly. For me, in a way, like it's just the concept that's so absurd that I find funny which I realise they kind of stole from the president of the US. Uh, but I just think it's such a funny thing to play with. So I'm kind of interested to see where they go with it. I think if you like silly, funny space dramas, I really recommend Avenue 5. It's absolutely brilliant, really clever, really, really funny. And Penny, what's been on your cultural list? Well, I finally just got started on Gina Rippon's book, The Gendered Brain, uh, which uses modern neuroscience to explode all of those sort of sexist assumptions we've been making for centuries about these supposed differences between the brains of men and women. I've been meaning to read it for ages, um, but I've only just started and I'm completely gripped already. So, yeah, great to have time to finally read it. I saw Rippon speak last year at New Scientist Live and it was really one of my absolute highlights. So I'm looking forward to to finding out a lot more. Um, But actually, I think we also have a a video to that talk on our website. So we'll tweet a link to that from New Scientist Pod. It's really sort of eye-opening stuff. Next up, Rowan, you've got the story of a breakthrough in suspended animation technology. What's the story? Well, we know that many animals can hibernate and go into a kind of state of suspended animation where their metabolism slows right down and that saves them energy over winter. Basically, they can kind of switch off in autumn and wake up in spring and miss all the hardship of winter. Yeah, so this is a trick used by birds and mammals and hummingbirds do it. So do lemurs and obviously um, more familiar with us is, is things like hedgehogs hibernate. Yeah, and now scientists have found a switch in the brain that turns a similar state on, and they found it in mice. Um, And if the same switch can be made to work in humans, it might enable us to go into hibernation. You could skip coronavirus lockdown and wake up when the pubs are open, or you could skip the Brexit negotiations or the US elections and just wake up on the other side. Are we encouraging people not to vote there? (laughs) Well, just uh, it's getting too much, some of it. But no, we're not encouraging people not to vote. (laughs) 
But more immediately, you could use suspended animation to perform life-saving surgeries and medical treatments, I guess. Yes, uh, some doctors are already using a kind of suspended animation to do this by mimicking what happens when the body is plunged into freezing water. So there's incredible reports of people who've survived for hours without oxygen in freezing water, underwater, because their brain activity has been shut right down. And yet when they're rescued, they've been revived. Yeah, we reported on a trial last year when a person was put into suspended animation of a sort in order to treat a gunshot wound. Yeah, that's the work being done in Baltimore, where the patient's blood is replaced with ice-cold saline in order to buy time for life-saving surgery to be performed. Um, But this new work is a bit different, because rather than replacing the blood with ice water, uh, this is a brain switch that induces torpor neurologically. So torpor is when the metabolism slows right down, but only for a day or less. It's not true hibernation. Uh, And the brain switch seems to be a cluster of neurons in part of the brain called the hypothalamus. Uh, What are the chances that it could work in people then? We don't know yet. Uh, It's not clear. But they have tried to see if the same switch works in rats, which don't normally have torpor, and it did work. So the researchers are quite hopeful that it will be the same in people. But we don't know yet if humans have this same cluster of cells. That's something they're going to need to check. But if we do? If we do, it would open the door to new kinds of life preservation techniques in medicine and even to more sci-fi possibilities such as extreme life extension and space travel over long distances. Um, In that Baltimore trial that I mentioned, they got approval to do it, to, you know, to replace all the blood of someone with ice cold saline. They got approval only in cases where the person was otherwise very likely to die and there simply wasn't time to perform the surgery that could save their lives. And you could see a similar ethical argument being made initially to induce torpor in people with severe medical conditions. Uh, Stroke is an obvious one and, and brain injuries and cancer. And if you could get it working safely, then you might, I'm sure people will start then thinking about using it for things like long distance space travel. Or no doubt some people might want to try to skip a few decades or a century until we've got better life extension technologies. There are many people who would be keen to try that. Is that something anyone, would you like to do that? I don't know. I'd be tempted. It does seem like cheating to try and skip the time you're born into. I think, um, I guess obviously it would depend on the risks involved. And also it would be so awful to leave all your friends and family behind. Um, But I could definitely see the appeal maybe um, of skipping maybe to just the middle of next year, for example. (laughs) It's a bit like time travelling. You could sort of just pop into the future, except you can't come back again. Yeah, it keeps making me think of uh, Futurama, actually. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Lyle Liverpool and Graham Lawton. And thanks to you for listening. One extra thing to mention is that we have a live online event on Thursday, the 25th of June called How Humans Are Altering Life on Earth. It's with author Helen Pilcher, and she's going to tell us how humans are changing life intentionally via selective breeding and genetic technologies and unintentionally by changing the biosphere. So that's the live event online, Thursday, 25th of June. Visit newscientist.com slash events for more details. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and please vote for New Scientist Weekly in the British Podcast Awards at britishpodcastawards.com slash vote.
and podcast listeners get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20 at checkout. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. Do subscribe to our show and spread the word. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.